Well, thank you so much, Sasha, for joining me today. Super excited to, to chat with you about a lot of different endeavors that you've been on and, and now your journey into the space economy with Blue Shift Aerospace and talk about how we can do space sustainably, right? And is that even possible? What are some of the first steps that we're seeing in making that happen? What's the current state of, of, of a space economy? What can we look forward to in the future? There's a lot of exciting things happen, but you know, sometimes we, it takes a while to get there. And I, we need like important teams like you guys to, to build this stuff effectively and sustainably for, for the rest of the world. But before we hop into Blue Shift, talk about your your journey into into space and into into fuel and, and how did you even get into the space economy in the first place? Yeah, I mean, I, I mean, truly, the, the I think the beginning comes from when I was a kid, right? So, like, I happen to be a child of the just post Apollo era. When I was a kid, it's when they're writing all the books about what people what they did in the Apollo era. And so you have you have all these expectations when you're a kid of what the what the future will hold when it comes to space and space exploration. And pretty much none of that was fulfilled during uh, all my childhood and well into uh, my adulthood. So, <laughs> um, but I mean, also, you know, I, I grew up in, in, in Maine where you can see the universe because it's, uh, it's there. There's the, the light pollution is so low. And so I actually grew up in the, in the woods of Maine for, for many years of my life and wow. sort of developed that sort of wonder for the universe, but the appreciation and love for, for the planet are, you know, uh, the natural beauty of, in this case, Maine. Uh, so as I, as I grew up, I, I, my passion and love for space continued and, you know, I ultimately got a degree in physics and electrical engineering, but sort of ethically and morally, I always wanted to find a way to combine technology, but have making technology benefit humanity and our planet. So, um, in 99, I actually, uh, started up with two other folks, uh, a renewable energy company, which is still in existence today and doing well, um, providing solar products and systems for people wanting to live off grid or wanting to be, uh, you know, providing their own solar power into the grid. But uh, my passion for space never, never went away. And um, it was probably in the mid, you know, end of 2012 uh, that I decided that I want to just focus any, all of my excess time and energies into everything I could learn about rockets, propulsion systems in a way, and, and ultimately pushing humanity's ability to explore the universe further in some commercial fashion um, or some enterprise. So sure. short of it is I, I started doing my own rocket engine test with, a, with another um, engineering mate of mine from uh, college many years ago. And then we were using, the, we were using petroleum fuel and we were doing these engine tests on my, on my brother's farm, these small engine tests. And it was just happen chance, really serendipity that I happened to come across a certain substance on my my brother's farm. So he's an organic huh. farm. And sitting down, you know, it was after doing engine tests one day, um, sat down in his kitchen and, and on his windowsill was something he just pulled off the farm like a week or two before. And I thought, man, what if that could work as a fuel? And if it could, and even doesn't work as well as petroleum, it'd be far more sustainable than petroleum. And, it, you know, this could be manufactured, the fuel could be manufactured basically anywhere in the world, but huh. anywhere in the United States, there's farms. So it was like two weeks later, we spun up what we call a fuel core or a fuel grain, tried out the fuel, and not only did it work, it, it worked actually better than the petroleum uh, fuel that we were using, which is like, for me, it was a slap in the face. Like, why Why has nobody done this before? And I think I think... It was from that point on, that point on for the next several years, the journey was that nobody, 
could believe you could use something that wasn't derived from petroleum to power rockets, including right. NASA when we applied for grants. Um, There's a lot of pushback. And um, as, as comes with anything that's new and different, right? Sure, sure, it sure. Work. Are you able to, to say like what it is or like? Or I can't tell exactly. I can't say what yeah. exactly. I can I can say that it's it's a solid fuel. It it, it isn't manure because people often ask us, is it manure? It's not manure. Like the, I, I was filmed on CNN. Actually, they asked me to eat the fuel and I said, okay, I'll do it. And uh, I did it on camera. You could eat it. It's not calorically really beneficial to humans, but it won't. <laughs> <laughs> it won't cause like severe gastric distress. I had no problems with my belly uh, after I ate it, but it is a byproduct for a lot of farms. Uh, and, gotcha. uh, and it actually benefits by um, farming practices that are more sustainable and uh, organic farms, especially. So the, so it is a solid fuel. It's not a liquid fuel. And our, that kind of speaks to our engine, our engine. It's something that's called a hybrid rocket engine. We okay. ultimately developed that, that technology under a grant from NASA but it basically, it, it hybrid just means that instead of having both your your fuel and your oxidizer be liquids, we have our fuel as a solid and the oxidizer is liquid. So it's a hybrid between solid and liquid fuels and um, why oxidizers. Just really quickly, like why focus on specifically rockets um, and not and not go into like other, I guess, or sell it. At, in other sectors, right? Or like, whether it's like tractors or obviously like cars or any type of form of mobility, what was, was just space, the attraction for you because of like, you know, just your love for it. And maybe the, the economics of the, of that part of the economy is going to go up quite a bit that you, you decided to go down that route. Cause it seems like it could fuel other things too, correct? Technically, you know, you could come up with systems that would allow like cars to, you, you'd have to kind of sort of reinvent not the wheel, but the motor um, mm, right. to allow it to um, to uh, to work with uh, with our fuel. But with the the source of our fuel, I think we would. I think we have no issue with powering our rockets from now and definitely into the future as we get bigger and bigger and do more and more launches. But I don't know that the raw materials, at least currently, could sustain like a, for instance, a whole country powering their cars. It would have to. It would be a you know com- very much a overhaul of our agricultural systems, not necessarily in a negative way, but perhaps in a very positive way, but it would take up, it would take a big reshaping of our, how we do sure, that. Sure. Yeah. The, the short of it is to answer your question, I think uh, it's, it's a sort of a niche market, right? Space transportation. Yep. We don't all do it. And it's a niche market within that, that sector. So we're doing very small, relatively small rockets, taking small payloads to space. I wanted to talk about what blue shift is. So it's a good opportunity to go right into that. And what, what does Blue Shift do, right? You kind of stumbled upon this, this fuel and now you're sort of, now you're making rockets that are deployed to space for governments, for businesses. The point is to bring satellites. Is that the, is that the cargo that we're, we're talking about here? Or I guess just walk us through what Blue yeah. Shift is and sort of that mission and vision. Our sort of five year timeline is to ultimately be taking tiny satellites to space. And uh, these are satellites called small satellites or nano satellites. And they're providing many of the same services that the those big bus size satellites that cost mm-hmm. billions of dollars provide. Um, you know, communications, earth imaging allows to track weather, allows to track climate change. And these are our, what our customers are doing. They're, they're the small satellite customers. And really in the last 20 years, there's these small satellites have gone from something that um, students were doing in colleges and universities to full-fledged, many multi-million dollar companies are doing to provide these services. And for instance, you know, 
some of the services are, you know, some of the images we see in the, in the news today, with the war in Ukraine mm-hmm. and other places or volcanoes off in the Pacific, um, those are being captured by these tiny, tiny satellites. And so there's, there's a market of something like uh, $30 billion expected for just launching these tiny satellites in orbit. And the fundamental problem these, these little satellites have, um, even though there's a big economy that's growing for them, the biggest problem they have is that their only way to get to space is to run um, sort of like second-class citizens on the gigantic rockets. Think, think SpaceX, ULA, United Launch Alliance. So they, these tiny look, satellites you, you and I could hold in our hands having to huh. ride next to satellites that are as big as a school bus. Wow. And so they, they, they get no priority. They don't get to go where and they want to go. I think for gotcha. me, the, sort of the, the best metaphor is you want to go to grandma's house and visit her for Christmas. And, uh, but the, you, your only option is a freight train. <laughs> so you'll, you'll take the freight train because that'll, that'll, that'll cut down uh, the first 400 miles of the travel to see grandma. But uh, if, you know, if that last couple of miles to get off that freight train, you're going to have to hoof it. And that's what happens to these small satellites is they basically have to hoof it as in they have to have their own little propulsion systems to kind of move themselves where they wanted to be in the first place. And that can take weeks or months to get there. And what we're going to provide is the ability for these small satellite customers to go, you know, have their own car, have their own taxi mm. service, exactly where they want to go. Gotcha. So our rockets are small enough that it'll fit their size. Now, that's what we want to do, I would say, in the medium term. And in the short term, we're leaning in heavily to focus on supporting STEM. You know, I would call, I call it space STEM, STEM. Yeah. <laughs> it's double S STEM. And we're leaning really heavily on supporting um, not only students from K through, you know, college to do uh, experiments in space, but students across the world. Uh, So, for instance, already our very first uh, customer base is is through a company called Max IQ Space that create these sort of Lego-like science modules that students can design their own experiments, launch in our rocket, do actual space science, collect data and analyze it. And I've been... I've been really impressed by how invigorated and how inspired the students get to be part of this, to be doing this. Because we've already, believe it or not, we've already like started incorporating students in their these these electronic experiments. Not only will it be in our launches, but we've already incorporated into our rocket engine tests we've been doing the last couple. Huh. And so it's been really neat to see to see these students really get inspired and, and re- do do actual real science. Well, there's so much to to do now. You can have these, you can have a whole degree, I imagine, is is going to be in the works for a lot of these universities because there is a, a place to go after that, right? There's going to be so many jobs yeah. in the space economy that you're going to have. I'm sure there's, I mean, there's like aerospace degrees, but there's probably going to be like degrees in satellites and, and degrees in all kinds of different things revolving around space. Space operations, um, logistics. Yeah, I mean, it's just yeah. Yeah, it's it's going to be Security. an enormous opportunity for students because, like you said before, I think it was kind of like you said growing up. Like you can look up and you can kind of wonder and, and be inspired, but there's not really much you could do. But now, for that kid, you know, middle school or high school, you know, entering college, there's like going to be opportunity. So it'll be much much more easy to like touch out and feel, so to speak, of like what the opportunities are, what you could do within just a space arena, not necessarily going to space, right? It's yeah. Metaphor, and, and, metaphor would be like sports. Like you don't have to play sports to be involved. There's the front office, mm. right? There's the agency side. A lot yeah. of people can't play sports 
at a professional level. A lot of people aren't going to be able to go to spaces like an astronaut or whatever it might be, but they can be involved in that entire economy and ecosystem. And you've really seen this shape, you know, change its shape in the last 20 years. So it's gone from like anything to do with space is really the government domain to becoming uh, into the private domain, you know, with SpaceX, uh, Blue Origin, with Virgin, you know, but I'd also even argue like uh, Copenhagen Suborbitals, which is sort of this volunteer group that's going to be sending humans up to space and back again. And that's really shaped over the last 20 years. And even with International Space Station, which is supposed to be decommissioned, you know, that that possibly can go into private hands and become sort of a space hotel. Mm, yeah. Uh, so, um, but that's, you know, even for us uh, as a small launch company, there are so many jobs available, you know, everything from the marketing side of things to, you know, we, we're ultimately going to be launching from uh, off the coast of Maine on a sea-based platform, not just because we're in Maine, but just uh, we actually have a geographical advantage um, that we can we'll be the, the very first company in the United States to, I think the only privately held space port they'll be able to launch into, um, it's it's called polar orbit. It's a, it's a very specific orbit that goes around the North and South Poles where we, we just launch right over the Atlantic Ocean and basically heading towards Antarctica, um, not going over anybody's houses or, pro- you know, people or property, <laughs> which is really key unless you're in China. And that's, turns out that's the number one orbit uh, for these tiny satellites. But huh. to do all this, you know, we need people who are going to be, sure, we're going to need engineering. We're going to need, we're going to need folks who are going to help us do the manufacturing side of um, the rockets we'll be launching. But we also need people who are going to be interacting with customers who are going right. to be, we really want to make it a real whole experience for our customers because our customers, because of the type of customers they are, they will be coming coming with their experiments and ultimately their, their small satellites to the launch site and they'll be coming to the state of Maine. And, and we really want to create a sort of a whole end-to-end experience. It's not just about launch. It's about the whole experience of coming to see your experiment or your, your initial satellites to launch mm-hmm. into space for the very first time. And so uh, we need everybody from, from HR to customer service to people who are really good with working with the public. Um, so, and, and the whole, whole, everything in between. And, and, a big part of who we are is transparent and sharing the science and experience with everybody, which is part of the reason why we share so much online, especially our YouTube videos. And we expect to continue that right up to the point where we'll be sharing virtual reality yeah. uh, videos of the, the rocket launches. How do we, I don't know, by we just as like a society and I mean, a species, it's tough to, to obviously mandate certain things in other countries, but as like US space companies, like how do we get this right as far as being being careful or, or being conscious of how this affects, I don't know if biodiversity in space is the right thing, but like a lot of how we've kind of not worried about our biodiversity and our atmosphere here, you know, just, just from a pollution standpoint and, and saying, hey, let's keep growing the economy, keep going, keep growing, keep growing. And now we sort of see maybe some of the side effects from that. How do we perhaps go into this a little bit more responsible as we're truly dealing with... <laughs> outer space, we absolutely need to take care of that, right? I mean, obviously the earth is one thing, but is there a way we can do this responsibly as we move, you know, move to outer space in a way where, like you said, people could be staying at the space hotel, right? And eventually uh, multi-planet species and stuff. Like how do we, how do we start to do it right from the foundation? Cause we are in the beginning, right? This is, this is where you kind of set guidelines, rules, whether it's, whether it's policies, that mm-hmm. governments, you know, state or whether it's a collective uh, part of of startups and companies in the space. Like, how do we 
how do we get it right? Looks like, look, we could start with fuel for some of this stuff, right? That, you know, carbon neutral fuel is, is a great way to go, right? Is there other things that is possible now or in the future where we, we do this in a responsible way? We are constantly challenged internally, and I would say as an industry too, to how do you do things in a way that minimizes the harm on the planet? Because basically, when we're consuming things, we're manufacturing things. We, we there's always a cost, right? Sure. Is how do you how do you offset that cost, or how do you minimize it? And you know, for instance, one of the things that that um, that I found early on was that uh, you know even the batteries in a rocket. Mm can be a, a source of toxicity, right? So for instance, you know, the go-to for us would probably be like lithium type batteries. Well, mm-hmm. it turns out maybe the lithium and the anode and the cathode aren't, are not toxic to the environment, but the electrolyte is, mm. <laughs> the goo that's kind of between the, the two. And that when those are exposed- Well, and you have to mine the lithium in the beginning, right? The right, place. yeah, that's, that's <laughs> a very good point. And that has very, you know, very significant costs. So, you know, one of the, one of the things, you know, we're, we're going to, you know, our rockets will be reusable and our intention is to um, recover the rockets in entirety and reuse as much as we can from, from launch to launch. But on occasion, things will be lost and go to the bottom sure. of the ocean. And you want to know that you aren't adding to the contamination, which we just, humanity just kind of unloads into the ocean on a daily basis. Yeah. And, um, and for me that, you know, it's kind of looking at everything, that, how you build a rocket, what, for instance, we inevitably will be using composites, right? And resins that go into those composites off gas and are and 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 not not good off gassing, but tend to off gas for for some time. And are there resins? And it appears to be there are resins that off gas less. And so you huh. you end up having to make sort of this decision of what's going to create the least harm to our planet, what's going to take, you know, least amount of resources to get those raw materials and then uh and then co- you inevitably take some compromises in terms of performance and the, and the challenge in the aerospace world well not the aerospace but i would have to say really the space world is you are eking out every single half percentage point you can on performance and so when you say well we'll, we'll use this resin but we're going to have to kick it on a little thicker because it's it doesn't quite have the same strength qualities as the as the toxic stuff you're, you're, you're making a sacrifice. You're going to have to make a rocket it might right. be a little bit bigger, a little bit heavier and carry a little less customer payload. But I think we have to be okay with that. And we, we have to be okay. Like it shouldn't be that the earth can take a hit at all to whatever venture I want to run. I have to be cognizant or we have to be cognizant of what the sacrifice is and, and how the heck can we minimize it to achieve our aims as a, as a enterprise. And I think that's something that, especially in the aerospace industry has been absolutely ignored and you look at some of the rocket launches, um, not, not necessarily in the U.S., but like in other countries, and you see these red plumes, and that's a toxic gas that's coming out mm-hmm. of it. Anything downwind of that is it's probably been devastating, including plants. Our industry is sort of rife with environment not doesn't come last. It just doesn't come into play. And It always takes a backseat to innovation, I feel like. Complete backseat, like not like not even the bumper sticker backseat, <laughs> exterior of the car. Yeah, back, they back built the trailer, and that's where they put it. It's, yeah, like whoops, that itself. bounced off the back. Yeah. <laughs> um, when we we talk about the cost of this, right? You kind of mentioned wanting to be able to reuse the rockets because as as a business model, right? I'm trying to find the sustainability within the business model, right? And it seems like you would have to be able to reuse. Yes. most of these rockets, right, to get to that point where it's a viable business model. 
you know, for this for this economy to really scale because it all starts with the rockets, right? That that part has to be, you know, economically viable to get the innovation in it. Yeah, I think, you know, remember the rocket industry kind of comes from the missile industry back when people, well, this thing's taking a one-way trip anyway, so I don't right. care. Gonna pull right. Off, right. And just the reality. That alone it. is amazing, right? That we can kind of get these things back now, which is. Yeah. But I, th- I don't think it was all, the, I don't think it's as hard as, 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 as our governments would, would have put out there. There's, it just, it was just additional engineering. Right. Mm-hmm. And even in our case, our suborbital rockets was, which just means rockets that go up to space and come back down. I mean, that's pretty, pretty easy to recover. Yes, you have to, in our case, we have to go out to to the ocean and we'll be hiring out commercial fishermen to help us retrieve our rocket. But you'll be able to know where exactly it kind of is going to be. Yeah. Yeah. And and maybe that's where the heritage is. Like early days, they didn't know exactly where. And then by the time they got to it, there's a good chance it would have sunk. But those are, those are, those are just engineering problems. Make it so it doesn't. And uh, make it so you can, you know, more easily locate it. Being being more sustainable is is not only about it's not only about reusability. It's not only about making decisions at the design and manufacturing levels on things that'll be less toxic for a planet, more sustainable in its production and, and raw resources. But it's also about literally where do you get the energy from to produce mm-hmm. fuel to produce, um, in our case, is effectively the sun. And we're you know to manufacture the rockets. You know that we're at a old a previous what was a previously a naval air station in brunswick maine and uh in the 10 years or so that since it's been decommissioned there's now multi megawatts of, of solar panels powering the bulk of our campus we even at our our test site our, our first launch system and our future manufacturing site have been and will be powered by renewable energy by solar power mostly and these are all decisions that we can make. And I, I am not the first guy who happens to own both a solar company and a rocket company, but, <laughs> but I apparently am the first guy that has, has both and has considered using and implemented and executed from the beginning, seeing renewable energy at every point that we can for everything we do. Um, it's quite a re- regenerative process, it seems like. Like the whole ecosystem can be pretty regenerative, it sounds like. It you know, can I mean, obviously be. that stuff takes time and and, and resources and, and, yeah, and investment. For sure. Right. But if you if all if all you care about is the bottom financial dollar, you don't care about the the larger humanity and planet Earth dollar, then you won't you won't put solar panels at your launch site. You won't put solar panels at your rocket engine test site. You won't put it at your facilities. But we do. We talked so. about um a little bit earlier some of the things that is happening with small scale satellites right now, or even satellites in general. Can you talk about, I guess, because, you know, look, us is, I'll speak for myself, but like a space layman, right? Like I I know a little bit, but I don't know a ton at all. And part of why I like to have these conversations is I like to learn. So what, I guess you don't have to name the clients, right? But maybe if you can mention some of the things that are being done, right? Like a client comes to you or whoever comes to you and say, hey, we want to use your rockets to go do this. Like, what are some of these, we could, let's call them startups or now, like startups doing with your rockets? Like, what are they going, is it just pictures? Is it data analytics? It, it seems like there's, there's going to be a lot of need for analytics, especially in the climate space. There's so many climate tech companies coming out, trying to define uh, and measure, you know, carbon sequestering, carbon offsetting, trying to validate these, these things. Is that a lot of the things that these satellites are doing is really collecting data, taking pictures? I guess, what are some of the cool yeah. things that you see happening and just 
the space economy now. Sure. Yeah. So like, you know, probably, probably within our realm, like the, a company called Planet, we've had conversations with that makes these satellites that are about like, they're like shoe back, shoe box size, maybe like a, maybe a huh. boot box size. And these are, um, they have a whole constellation of these small satellites that they put up over the years and that they, you know, they're, they're replacing and adding to over the years. And these are, these are uh, satellites that are, yeah, they're providing optical images of the planet once a day in, in high resolution, but they're doing it also in multiple, you know, different, different wavelengths, visible and non-visible and provide, you know, then they sell that, that data to, to different folks. It could be colleges and universities, could be nonprofits. Uh, my, my wife works for an environmental nonprofit organization that's preserving the coastline of Maine. Right. And they use, they use that type of data to Definitely. kind of see, yeah, see where, you know, how, how the marshlands are changing and, and where, whether it's release or more or less release of methane gases and stuff like that. And you can, you can understand the health of forests, the health, of, but you could also understand the health right. of, of farmlands and stuff like that. It's like a CT scan for the earth. That's, that's one way to do it. Yeah. And so the, there's other companies are coming online doing the same type of thing. Uh, another company we we've been in communications with a company called Spire and they basically create these small, the same similar sort of form factor satellites, but they might have multiple sensors, multiple communication capabilities. And they're basically doing instead of software as a service, they do satellite mm. as a service. Yeah. So, you know, you kind of choose what, what realm of sensors and abilities you want to use and you pay them for so many minutes or hours on the satellite to do what you want to do and how you want to do it. Maybe it's every time you go over, you know, the state of Montana, you want the satellite to be allocated to monitor grasslands or something like that, or and it's being employed by uh, by a university there or something like that. So that's one. And, and then like another example is a company called Link, L-Y-N-K. And they are providing, again, these same sort of small satellites, but a whole constellation of them. And uh, they will provide cell phone service. So instead of your cell phone tower mm-hmm. being a couple miles off to your left or your right, <clears throat> it happens to be straight up. And mm. um, re- really enabling you to use your cell phone if you're if you're at the top of a mountain, stuck in the forest, or you know, gotcha. in the middle of rush hour traffic in some urban setting. Um, Is that essentially how Starlink works? Yeah, so they Star- have bigger satellites. Yeah, exactly. So Starlinks Starlinks are technically considered <clears throat> small satellites, but that's exactly what they are. There's a constellation of them up up there, but these their satellites are quite humongous. You know, they're. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think each one is probably three times the the weight that we would carry in our totality for our, our each rocket. But so they're very, very large ones. And I think, you know, the, the, the big change with these tiny satellites is that they, instead of kind of being put far away from Earth so that they last many years up in space, they can make them much smaller, much lower power and, and much less expensive. But they put them mm-hmm. in an in orbit that's much closer to Earth. And the good, the, the good thing from, from a sort of, we call it environment, we talk about biodiversity, we talk about like, you know, not polluting space. Uh, there is concerns about having too many of these small satellites or satellites. Yeah, that was, was going to be my next question. Like, at, yeah. at some point, do we have like overpopulation? And like, is there a limit to, you know, eventually there might be limits to how many can go up a year or something. I don't know, right? Like, it, is that, for, I mean, would that be like 100 years though, 150 years before you get to that point? I, I think we're going to start encountering those sort of limits in the next decade, if if not less. Um, and there's already friction. And then you have, you know, nation states deciding to blow up their own satellites and just show people they can do that. And then they create so much debris that's random. Yeah. 
Right, right. They right. can possibly take out other people's satellites and, and wreak absolute havoc on things that we now depend upon, not just the United States, but the entire planet. So you get you get instances like that that are intentional, let alone accidental. So, but that's 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 actually one of the benefit of these these tiny satellites is that a lot of them are being put into orbits that are very low, and so they inherently don't they burn up it's in safer, the atmosphere. Huh? Yeah, they burn up in a couple of years. And it's and, and the reason why that's acceptable is that satellite didn't cost much in the first place. And in three to five years, maybe the satellite that Link used to provide cell phone service to anybody on the planet, well, now they want to go from, I don't know, 5G to 6G or 7G, whatever the next technology will be. (laughs) And they have to refresh the technology anyhow. Uh, So they or they want to, you know, they want to update it and give it more capacity. So it actually kind of works out where the cost is low for them compared to traditional satellites. It's not creating much in pollution because it just doesn't stick around for very long. And that's, you know, just kind of one of the many nuances in how things are changing with the satellite industry and the services they're providing and how they work. It's gone from monolithic, giant, billion-dollar assets being put into space to something that could literally cost tens of thousands of dollars being put into space. Last couple of questions here. One would be just to piggyback off of what you had mentioned before, maybe limits, regulations, policies. Where are we at like right now for... is a really cool benefit of, of like your company is that the barrier entry for a startup is a bit easier because they can they can kind of piggyback off of your I'm sure you have to have some type of license or some type of registration to launch rockets and satellites right like yeah. I again I don't know the world right but there has to be some I'm sure a, a rigorous because I think you need licenses for drones right there's some regulation around just drones so I imagine launching is is quite rigorous as well. Yeah, it certainly certainly is. We we have to, you know, basically the agency that 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 we have to work with closely is the FAA. We've been mm-hmm. since our, you know, we had a, a prototype launch two years ago when we made history as the first company to commercially launch a rocket using a bio-derived uh, fuel, let alone one that was non-toxic. But we we even back then for that low altitude launch, we had to work with the FAA. And now we've been working very closely because the probably a, a factor of 100 more complex and more rigorous what we have to go to to, to launch these, you know, our full-size rockets all the way to space. And on top of that, we're not only getting permissions to launch our rocket, um, but we're getting permissions to uh, have our future launch site, which means we have to do a whole environmental impact study as mm-hmm. required by the FAA. And it is very expensive, but, you know, you did kind of allude to that, you know, by by private companies doing this before, doing things like this before, it makes it easy for those to come. And that is true. There, or there is some truth to that. You know, so, you know, the SpaceX's, the Blue Origins of the world, having to work with the federal government, kind of push it forward. There have been some modifications to regulations that really takes the industry from viewing it as space as a domain of governments to the space as domain mm-hmm. of humanity. Um, we're, we're all allowed to play and commercialize it or do it for research. So there are there they I, I give a lot of credit to the FAA in that they have they work it's been really great to work with them and they're very much in favor of of enabling humanity to humanity and commerce to exist and beyond our planet and their biggest concern is just we've got to t- watch out for the safety of for humans and so making regulations that are that are clear clear and, and um, for both a, a launch site and uh, for you know for rockets, uh, they've done a really good job at kind of bringing clarity. It's still really hard, and I, <laughs> and I and I would say I would just have to say that we have the one advantage that when it comes, for instance, to environmental impact, unlike almost any other rocket, 
we know that when our when our rocket launches or if it perishes in the ocean, the environmental impact, other than the physical pollution that it is physically in the way of something, it's not contaminating the waters, it's not killing fish, it's not killing the ecosystem below, let alone, you know, encroaching upon people's uh, livelihoods because sure. some giant oil spill. And that's, I think, you know, even with SpaceX rockets, you know, the, 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 the last stage of those rockets, that when they go into the ocean, they're gone. And they, it isn't like all of the petroleum has been burnt out of that engine. It's there is probably thousands of gallons left. Really, thanks to the bottom. Yeah, because you always leave a little bit of fuel left because you don't know how much of fuel you're going to need exactly. Right. So yes, they bring back their first stage rockets, but it it isn't like all stages come back. Gotcha. And um, there's a lot of residual petroleum that's just dumped into international waters, but we don't talk about that. Is the U- is the U.S. Leading, so it's a weird word because it's so different, but are we leading the way in sort of allowing private industry to innovate? You mentioned the Copenhagen Group. I mean, obviously, I'm sure China is deep into this, but probably more from a governmental standpoint. Is there other countries doing really cool and interesting work? Yeah, there there are. You know, there's, uh, you know, probably within our industry, uh, one of the biggest competitors is a uh, is a small country that some way reminds me of Maine that's highly dependent on agriculture and tourism, a country called New Zealand, ah. a country called Rocket Lab. Obviously, have a company called Rocket Labs. It's been this very much you know sort of embraced the new space industry as we call it, and they're doing very well. They have pretty reliable launches to space. They're doing it off the coast of New Zealand. They're about to do it off the coast of the United States. So they're one. And, you know, I think in the UK, we're seeing some launch companies come online now. There's even one that's creating um, sort of a bio-derived propane uh, for their fuel. And uh, you, there's a company in Australia that's developing a, a hybrid rocket engine. It doesn't use biofuel like ours does. It uses, um, I think, burned plastic or something like that. Hmm. But so, yes, you see, we're seeing more and more countries uh, support their entrepreneurs in the space industry. But I do think that the United States does dominate in terms of innovation. And and I think a fair amount of credit goes to to NASA, believe it or not. NASA in the last... I think they, it feels like they found their right role. Yeah. They're, 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 they're not sort of doing like everything the themselves. They just kind of become capital allocators of, of the grants and funding and picking and kind of... But that maybe at the end of the day, that's all that should have been kind of their role these last dead years of space, so to speak, right <laughs> after they, after it's like you said, it's just kind of been just silent a little bit. Obviously work still gets done, but it feels like they finally found a, a good role for, yeah. for what they can do and be, and be beneficial at, at scale. I think you're right. I think that happened in early 2000s, maybe it was the late nineties, but I think it was early two thousands, but yeah, they've gone from like, we're the only ones to go to space to let's see how we can enable, yeah, enable this industry. Let's, Let's take Let's be the incubator. <laughs> yeah. And, and, you know, for us, it, you know, early on a few years ago, when we developed an original technology around um, our engine to efficiently combust our biofuel, it was, you know, a lot of our developments and, and, and leaps forward were with nudges and help from a technical contact we had um, in Alabama at one of the NASA centers, NASA Marshall space flight center. And, um, I was just sort of beside myself about how helpful he was and just kind of encouraged us along. It's like, wow, you feel like you're doing something wrong that they're helping us, but that that <laughs> is their job. That is yeah. their job. And it's, yeah, that's great. So, yeah, and I don't think you, you probably don't see that type of stuff in China, for instance, or um, or other countries or or countries, you know, 
to have the heritage that we do, or let alone Russia, for instance. Yeah, all right. Last uh, last question here. Kind of a little bit about the future. You touched on it a little bit earlier, but um, you know, looking into the next three to five years, let's say, what does success look like for you? Yeah, I mean, for us, it's it's clearly you know we're launching academic and professional research payloads up to space. Uh, not once a year, not twice a year, but within three years, you know, we're launching at least a, a dozen times a year. In five years, we're taking up our our very first um, small satellites into orbit, uh, and we are demonstrating that that this can be done not only profitably but done in a way that's more environmentally friendly than any other launch company is doing today. And and we're <laughs> to be honest, we're also. Uh, we're also developing an economy within uh, a state that's uh, in, a, in this new space uh, industry. I was about to say, yeah, absolutely, yeah. absolutely. That, that this state is not known for. But I can tell you whether it's Alabama or Florida or Texas, there was a point in time, the before and after, where they were not known to be in the aerospace industry, and then they are known to have that capability. I think of like Austin, Texas. Austin, Texas mm-hmm. used to be a, a great town and still is. But it wasn't known for its great software and high tech industry. Right. And I think, you know, a decade or two ago, um, they made some real moves forward. And the same thing's happening. And then and now they're really one of the one of the meccas for for doing high tech. And here in the in the state of Maine, for instance, there's a lot of the big effort underfoot to um, uh, there's a, a new organization called the Maine Space Corporation that's been developed to to help grow this economy out in a very mm-hmm. intentional way, taking the long approach. And part of their part of their mandate is to do this in, a, in an environmentally friendly way that is possible. And I don't think you see that with many other states at this time to have that sort of environmental mandate. Do you think you'll have the uh, the launch site ready within five years, or would that environmental study take years to 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 do and get registered, if, get verified? If we can achieve our our funding goals, you know, we're about to do we're wrapping up an equity crowdfunding raise right now. Where um, we said that over a million, huh? Yeah, over a million dollars, and that's allowed us to do what we've done to you know in the last year. And it's been sort of amazing to have all these people investing us and have sort of almost like a fan base helping you know cheering us along. <laughs> that's great. Yeah, but we have to raise another five to ten million in the next uh, few months. And if we can, once we raise that amount, that that will pay for the environmental study and all the efforts we have to have. And I, if we achieve those goals, I see no reason why within a year to eighteen months we. We wouldn't be able to launch off the coast of Maine, have the approval of the FAA, have the environmental impact study done, um, and 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 sort of be breaking history as the very first company to launch all the way to space commercially, a rocket using a carbon neutral bio-derived fuel uh, and doing it off the coast of Maine. Pretty amazing stuff. Well, thank you so much for taking the time, Sasha. Thank awesome you, conversation. Best of luck to you and the team for the next couple of decades to come. Thank you. Well, it was a pleasure to thank you. You know, I really appreciate it. It's a pleasure talking with you, and I really appreciate the opportunity to share with what we're doing here at Blue Shift. 